Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, then uh, it'd be great if you could turn to Matthew chapter 6. And uh, today we're, we're looking at the second in our series, Secrets of the Kingdom. And uh, Rob kicked it off for us last week. And, and this kind of mini-series, really, it's a, a series of about five, um, sits within our wider look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount really being the Kingdom Manifesto. This is Jesus' teaching on what the Kingdom looks like, which is kind of how we should live in the light of his coming. And uh, chapter 5 finishes with these words, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So that's quite a high standard, I'd suggest. And, uh, and if you read through Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that Jesus systematically shreds the understanding of the law that the people have at that point. Just cuts it into pieces and goes, OK, you've heard that. This is what I say to you. <laughs> Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He sets the bar significantly higher, in fact, out of reach from what they thought. Out of reach, that is, if you're not connected to the father. And that's what Rob looked at last week and what chapter six goes on to talk about. So chapter six talks about how you practice this righteousness, what that being perfect like your heavenly father actually looks like. And he, he exemplifies it in three areas, in giving, in prayer, and in fasting. We're going to look at giving this morning. But the key to all of that is being connected to the Father. <coughs> and so as we look at this this morning, I want us to consider something of the character of God, something of the Father's heart towards us. And then when we've done that, if we've got time, I'll look at some characteristics of giving and how that might work out for us. Um, but I might get a little too excited on the way through. So apologies in advance. But um, I'm, let's read this passage. So I'm just going to read the first four verses of Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may, may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think we should pray. Oh God, we, we come to you as the one who brings freedom, as the one who deals with all those things we were considering earlier. We know that in you, we have all things. And so as we come to consider your, your uh, instruction to us to give, Father, would our hearts be open to you, our Heavenly Father, and would you meet with us, I pray, by your spirit. May there not be a, a shred of any law, legalism, or anything like that upon us, but just the grace of knowing that we are children of the Father. Amen. Okay, so um, Jesus starts then by saying, so when you give. And uh, it's not you must give. It's just so when you give, there's an expectation that that will happen. 
And that begs the question, why? Why is it that Jesus can just say to his uh, disciples and the crowd that he's teaching, so when you give? Well, it's because giving reflects the character of God. And God is the great giver. And uh, we're, we're going to do two runs through scripture today. OK, this is the first one. So we start on page one. God gives life right on the very first pages of scripture. God gives He gives life to people. And when he's created people in verse 29 of Genesis chapter one, he then gives them every tree and every plant in the garden and says, that's yours. So right at the very beginnings of creation, we see that God is a God who gives. And then if we read through the rest of scripture, we see God giving victory over enemies. We see him giving rest to his people. We see him giving the land. We see him giving the law. We see him giving children. We see him giving wisdom. We see him giving food. Day after day after day, that incredible period of history where he gives manna to his people. Day after day after day, he gives. For 40 years, he gives daily. This is a God who gives. He gives his love to his people. In fact, he gives prom- or he promises that he has plans for his people which give a hope and a future. And it's a theme within the Sermon on the Mount. As we go through these next few weeks, we'll see that he- we can pray, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Why? Because the very heart of God is to give. In chapter seven, we're told that we can ask and we will receive because he gives for everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds to him who knocks. It will be opened. And then that incredible bit where he says, you know how to give gifts to your children. How much more will I as the heavenly father give good gifts to those who I love? He gives. And in case that isn't enough. Let me take you to possibly the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. He gave his only son. This is a God who gives. And because of that, Paul, on the back of that, can write in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us some things? All things. Freely give us all things. Why? He gave his son, therefore we know he will give us all things. Love Paul's logic. And if you continue to read through the New Testament, you come to chapters like Ephesians chapter one. That's all about God giving to us. It describes how we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. It describes how we're given sonship through adoption. It describes how our sins are forgiven through the grace that is poured out and lavished on us. We're told how the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our future inheritance. It's give, give, give with this God. And it's possibly best summed up in James chapter one and verse 17, which says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. 
coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So just think about a good thing, a good gift in your life. Came from God. Think of another one. Came from God. Think of another one. Came from God. I could stand here for a few hours and do this. And still we would be able to think of good things that come from him. Why? Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. This is a God who gives and gives and gives and gives. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That was the instruction at the end of chapter five. He gives. What should we do? Give. That's that's why there's an expectation. So when you give. Because it comes from the very character of God, there's an expectation we do it. And it's a secret of the kingdom. It's a secret. Because it flows from the very heart of God. And the only way we can do it is by being connected to the father, which we'll come on to look to in due course. So that's the first thing, when you give. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, so when you give to the poor. Now, I don't know how many times I've read those words. But I'd never really registered that the giving is to the poor. I knew I had to give. That was drilled into me. But when you give to the poor, that's the, that's the outlet, if you like. I saw this cartoon yesterday. It reminded me that poverty is a justice issue. How, how can that be fair by anyone's measure? Poverty is a justice issue. And as I now say these things, I'm very aware how unpoor I am, how rich I am, how rich we are as a nation. We're part of that 1%. And yet I need to speak on it because it says, so when you give to the poor. So I'm preaching to myself. Although I'm not poor now, um, growing up, uh, I was. And uh, there was very little money around, actually, in my family. And in fact, from the age of nine through to 12, um, my family had no income at all. Nothing. Um, I had three younger brothers and uh, neither my mum or my dad had an income. I never really thought of us as being poor. I just know I didn't have as I just knew I didn't have as nice stuff as my mates. Um, and that things, you know, you knew that things were tight. But I never really thought that we were poor. But actually, if you look at the, the kind of standard measures of poverty, then we would qualify. But we never, ever went short because God provided for us. So as an example, every week on a Saturday evening, a couple would come round with a boot full of food. For the younger ones amongst you, there was a time when supermarkets didn't open all through every night. They used to close and not even open on Sundays. And so they would sell off the stuff on a Saturday evening. So they would come round and they would knock at the door. I still remember it. Knock at the door. And then they would walk in with carrier bags full of food. That was our meals for the next week. Week after week after week after week, they would do that. Why? 
Because they gave like God gives. Because they were giving to the poor, in effect. And biblically, the poor is a kind of catch-all which encompasses the needy. It encompasses childless widows, so those who have no means of support. It includes orphans, it includes disabled, it includes those who have no means of their own. And God's heart throbs with concern for the poor. And when you read scripture, you'll see it. That the emphasis throughout scripture is on justice for the poor. Poverty is an injustice, as we've already said. And when God says give to the poor, it's not just about making people who haven't got very much have a little bit more. It's a much bigger thing than that. It's about justice for the poor. And that is God's consistent concern throughout the pages of Scripture. And therefore, I'd suggest if we're going to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, it should be our concern too. So we're now going to embark on a very whistle-stop tour through Scripture. There are loads of gaps. You can fill them in in your life groups in the week. Um, But here we go. We'll start with the Psalms. Can I just say that last Saturday, whatever happened here with the group of you who gathered with Angela to praise, it's amazing. The fruit of it already is amazing. And uh, and I say that because the Psalms, as we're going to look at now, are the, the kind of worship beat of the people of Israel. They're the songs that are written. They're the lyrics that are penned, the tunes that are composed that enable the people to worship. And something of that was released last weekend. So I am dead excited about what is happening on that area. Anyway, I digress. The Psalms, if we read them, have phrases like this. You provided in your goodness for the poor. The Lord hears the needy. He will deliver the needy. He will have compassion on the poor and needy. He has freely given to the poor. Then Psalm 113.7 may be a very famous one uh, that we sing the, the lyrics to. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So when Israel's worship leaders, writers, authors reflect on the character of God, Something that comes through is his concern for the poor and needy. I love that. We should expect that amongst us. When we reflect on the character of God, this should be one of the emphases that comes through. So the Psalms reveals his heart for the poor, but also the law does. The law outlined the way God's people should live. And uh, and the guidelines reveal something of God's heart for the poor. There's no doubt about it. They show how the poor should be treated. So we read that you must freely open your hand to him and generously lend to him who doesn't have sufficient for his need. That you weren't allowed to lend to the poor and charge interest on that loan. You could do it to the rich, but you weren't allowed to do it to the poor. You weren't allowed to keep the pledge of a poor man. We touched on this a few weeks ago. I think Chris was speaking on it, where the cloak would be as a pledge, as a sort of a down payment. But you weren't allowed to retain that overnight. You had to return it to a poor man. You weren't allowed to oppress the poor, Deuteronomy 24. You had to pay a poor man his wages on the day. Why? Because he was living hand to mouth. 
The guidelines in there were about justice for the poor. It was about doing the right thing for the poor. The Israelites were were basically a farming community who worked the land. And so they were told things like, when you are harvesting, don't reap to the edges of your field. And the reason that's given in scripture, leave it for the poor and alien. They were told not to glean their vineyard with the, when they were gleaning their vineyard, not to pick up and gather the fruit that's fallen to the floor. Why? Leave it for the poor and alien. We touched on this last summer, didn't we, when we looked at the story of Ruth in Boaz's field. God also said that every seven years should be designated a Sabbath year. That was a year when the land was allowed to lie fallow. The reason given, so the needy may eat, Exodus 23, 11. That was God's reason. Not just take a year off, that was part of it, but so the needy may eat. Also, the Sabbath year was a time for releasing people from debts. Why? So then there'll be no poor among you. That's the reason scripture says. So every seven years, it was a Sabbath year. Every seven, seven years and one, it was a Jubilee year. We know about that. That was when land was restored, when people were released from slavery. Why? Because those who'd been forced to sell land, forced to sell themselves into servitude in order to generate an income for themselves, weren't trapped in poverty anymore. They were released from that. It was about justice for the poor. It was about breaking this cycle of of poverty that trapped people. Why? Because God has a heart for the poor. But it wasn't only to do with social interactions and business transactions. God's concern for the poor also affected the sacrificial system. And there were a series of different sacrifices that were laid down in the law um, for various circumstances. And we haven't got time to look at that now. Talk to me over coffee if you want. Um, But Leviticus gives us loads of detail about it. Fantastic book. But one of those was the sin offering, which you might guess from the name deals with sin and the fact that we've sinned. And so I'd like you to turn to Leviticus chapter 5. We haven't got time to read all of it. But basically, if you sin, then you can bring an offering, a sacrifice to the temple and the priest will do what he needs to do with it in order for you to get forgiveness for your sins. So it says in verse six of Leviticus five, he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. I mean, that it's amazing in the first place that a lamb or a goat being sacrificed can actually deal with your sin. But nonetheless, that's the way God did it, which is amazing. But then it says in verse 17, if he cannot afford a lamb. Hang on a minute. So you have to bring a lamb or a goat. But then if you can't afford to do that. You can bring To the Lord, his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So if you can't afford a lamb or a goat, you can bring two birds 
Wow. Some of you don't look amazed. I find that amazing. God's got such, such specific standards, such specific instructions when he lays down things in scripture. Read how the tabernacle's made. Read how the ark is designed. It's very, very specific. And yet when we come to this, he says, you should bring a lamb or a goat, but some of you won't be able to afford it. So you can bring two birds. But wait for it. Verse 11. But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering for that which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. Wow. So you can't afford a lamb or a goat. You can bring two birds. If you can't afford two birds, you can basically bring this. A tenth of an ephah of flour is just under one kilo of flour. It's in a plastic bag so I don't spoil the carpet. (laughs) Okay. That deals with sin. I mean, this is mind-blowing because then we read in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So, a poor person who would look at the law and think, I cannot possibly afford to bring this blood sacrifice, therefore I cannot get uh, forgiveness for my sins, I cannot access God, God says, you can bring some flour. That is just mind-blowing. There is such a compassion and concern in God's heart for the poor that he would make a way that they could come to him even when they shouldn't be able to. So the law throbs with this heartbeat of God for the poor. And when we turn to the Gospels, it's no surprise that Jesus' ministry reflects that same priority. Luke's In Luke's gospel, Jesus' public ministry begins with him standing up and declaring, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor. That's what he says as his mission statement. That's how he kicks things off. And as you read through the rest of of his ministry, you'll see that 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 priority never goes away. So even in the Sermon on the Mount, which which we're studying now, opening sentence, blessed are the poor in spirit. When John the Baptist wants signs to know whether the kingdom is really coming through Jesus, what does Jesus say? He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. A sign of the kingdom. He's at the temple watching people putting in their offerings. Who does he pick out? A poor woman. Such eyes for the poor, such heart for the poor, and he honours her. In Jesus' teaching, what happens? Well, the poor get invited to banquets. A poor man gets into heaven while the rich man doesn't. The poor inherit the kingdom, while for the rich it's deemed to be harder than a camel passing through the eye of a needle. The destitute prodigal son gets welcomed home. The sheep get into heaven. Why? Because they fed the hungry, given drink to the thirsty, offered hospitality to strangers, clothed the poor. They did that. 
The goats didn't. They don't get in. It's about concern for the poor. Again and again and again, we see this priority that God has for the poor. His heart for the poor. So when we look at the early church in Acts, it's little wonder that they embraced that kind of facet of Judaism to give to the poor. The poor were so important to God that they should have justice. And so even as the early church are getting established, we read that they're sharing possessions amongst themselves. Why? To meet the needs of the poor. Acts chapter 4, 32 to 34 say this, And the congregation of those who believed, that's the church, were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Not a needy person among them. Just love that phrase. There's such an overwhelming sense of this is the priority of God, that whatever we have is ours in the early church. And it became an apostolic imperative. So that when Paul had his discussions with the leaders in Jerusalem and they charged him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, we read in the account of it in Galatians chapter Two, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That was what agreed. Division of labor. You take the Jews, we'll have the rest of the world. They only asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Hang on. So they've had this meeting where they've argued about should Gentiles be in or out? If they're in, should they be circumcised? What do we do about food sacrifice to idols, etc., etc., etc.? But remember the poor. There's no argument about that. Amazing. All this other stuff. Well, we need to work that out. But remember the poor. Don't worry. We wanted to. It's an apostolic imperative. Why? Because the gospel is good news to the poor. Because God's heart is for justice for the poor. It's in God's very heart. And so that's why I think here Jesus says, so when you give to the poor. So when you give to the poor. So that's fine. How do we do it? This is the bit where you expect a load about tithing and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to talk about that at all. You can work that out on your own. I'm going to give you some characteristics of genuine giving. So the first one is that genuine giving will be in secret. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets so that they may be honoured by men. Hypocrites, the, char- the 
If you read the, up to verse 18 in this passage, you'll see a caricature of a, of a hypocrite being painted. And it's, it's very interesting if you kind of draw those strands together and imagine what they were like. But a hypocrite was, it was kind of an actor who loved the applause of the crowd, played up to the gallery. It's kind of false exterior. And here we see the first characteristic, do not sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do. You see, the hypocrites loved to blow their own trumpet. We use that phrase, don't we? And we use it in a metaphorical sense. So, oh, there he goes, blowing his own trumpet. It could, it could be that. It could be metaphorical. It could be literal. It could be an actual trumpet. Some commentators think that they actually, you know, organized a little band so that when they came in with their big bag of money to pour it into the temple offering, that it was kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Here he comes. Look at him. Wow. God says give. Woohoo! Here he gives. Isn't he amazing? It could have been that. You laugh. Facebook. How amazing am I? Anyway, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. Um, it could be, it could be that the offering chest in the temple was also known as the shofar chest, the trumpet chest. And that's because on the ends of the offering chest were trumpet-shaped receptacles where you could drop in your offering. They were trumpet-shaped because they were wide at the top and narrowed. Security was an issue even back in first century uh, Jerusalem. So you couldn't get your hand inside. But you can imagine that if you had a large offering, now like the change machine in the supermarkets, you ever use that? You take your, your pot of coppers there and pour it in and... And then you get 20p off your tomatoes <laughs> at the end. So it, it's that sort of thing. But it makes an absolute racket. So you can imagine in the temple that pouring it in, look at me, sounding my trumpet as the coins clink into the bottom. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. When you give to the poor, don't sound your trumpet. Why? Because it's not about getting people to notice you. But he he says, it's not only about keeping it secret from others. He then goes on to say in verse 3, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. It's about keeping it a secret from yourself. Well, why is that? Well, if your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing, you can't applaud yourself. You can't give yourself a pat on the back while you're dropping your offering. We're not allowed to go down this route, self-congratulatory, well done you. Not allowed to do that. We don't look for our own approval even. We look just for the approval of God. It's a hard thing to do. I know I gave there. I know I gave there. You might look at the lack of examples of my giving in this sermon as one of two things. Either I don't want to boast about it or I haven't done it. Leave yourself to decide, okay? But we've got to be careful. Got to be careful. We're not doing it for the praise of others. And we're not doing it for the praise or good feeling of ourselves. Another bit of my story from that period of where we had no income as a family. We'd been living in a, in a church house up to that point, up to the age of nine. And then we, we moved out of that and we needed to buy a house. So my parents bought a house 
with no income. Now, this was the 80s, but it was still hard to do that then, okay? There were four couples who pledged money to my parents every month to cover the cost of our mortgage. So we had somewhere to live. Three years they did that for. Now, bear in mind that when we took on that mortgage, or when they took on that mortgage, the base of England interest rate was 9.8%. And in that three-year period, by the time we sold that house, it was up to 14.875%. Even after all these years, I don't know who those four couples are. I just know there were four. I've got an inkling who they might be, some of them, but I'm not certain why they gave in secret. There was no blowing their trumpet. They never came round and went, wow, look at this house. You've got us to be thankful for this. None of that. Giving in secret, so important. The giver receives no reward from man. No reward in this life. But your father who sees in secret will reward you. So genuine giving will be secret. Secondly, genuine giving will be generous and cheerful. Oh, how easy it is to say that. 2 Corinthians 9-7. You'll know it all. I had a poster of this. I remembered this morning. I had a poster of this on my bedroom wall. Some rabbit giving nuts to another rabbit or something. God loves a cheerful giver with a big bunny grin on its face. Sorry. Um, Each one, someone else, someone connected with you, yeah. Okay, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, decided in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's a kick in the teeth for the religious spirit from last week, isn't it? Not under compulsion, not because you're told to do it, but why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And I just want to spend a minute commending you as a church. Because I hear stories of people who've got financial need and it's met often anonymously by people within this room. Wow. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Just commend you because your, your ear is attentive to what God is saying to you and you're prepared to give and give and give. The, the carpet that you're stood on The chairs that you are sat on are because of your generous giving. The fact that you'll be able to go and have coffee from a smart coffee bar and sit on comfy chairs over there on a nice spill safe floor is because of your generosity. Are you feeling uncomfortable yet? You should be. It's because you've given. You've given, you've given, you've given. Thank you. Thank you. That's all I want to say on it. Thirdly, genuine giving responds to need. This isn't just giving into a vacuum. It's not just a direct debit which zips off somewhere and you never see it again. This is giving responding to a need. And as we saw earlier, we may live in a relatively rich part of the world, but there is still much need. Still much need right on our doorstep. We'll be hearing in much more detail over the coming months about the children's storehouse. And the fact that this is going to be an outreach ministry to the poor, which we as a church will do. 
we will offer. Why? Because there's a need. There's a need for clothes, for, for families who can't afford to clothe their, clothe their children. So if we can meet that need, we'll release finance for other things in those circumstances. And that reminds us that giving isn't just about money. It can be things. It can be meals. It can be time. It can be company. It can be prayer. It can be food, if I haven't said that already. It can be friendship. It can be support. Our giving can be direct or it can be indirect. It doesn't matter. God just loves it when we give and respond to a need. And I don't know whether you know this, but some of the money that you give to the church, we give away. Oh, no, we do. Why? Because it's important that as a church, we're generous. It's not we just give internally and it's all nice within ourselves. We give to bless others. And so we support ministry around the world. We give to the wider work of Catalyst. We support the church in France. There's all sorts of things that we do. And it's the gospel going out. And your money does that. So you might think, I don't give to the poor. No, you do give to the poor. But genuine giving responds to need. And finally, genuine giving is a grace thing. Hearing all that I've said today would be very easy to fall into that legalistic trap. So I must give. I must give because it's clear in the Bible I must give. I must give generously. That means I smile when I write the check. I must give cheerfully because I tell myself that I'm happy to be giving. You know, all that kind of thing. No. No, 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 no. We give even when it makes no sense to give. But people connected to the Father are able to give because of the grace that's on them. They know that their connection to the Father is not dependent on performance. And they don't give to remain connected to the Father. They give because they are connected to the Father. And that's the difference. They feel the beat of the Father's heart and they give. They see with the Father's eyes and they give. But it's a work of grace in us. Just going to read a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I've changed Bibles because I prefer this uh, translation for this one. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So these Macedonians are really, really poor. Out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. They first connected to the Father. And then they gave to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he'd earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, 
see also that you excel in this grace of giving. Paul's writing to the Corinthians about the Macedonians who gave out of their nothing because they were first connected to the Father and were able to give. And he says, you too excel in this grace of giving. You excel in all these other areas, excel in this grace of giving. Genuine giving is a grace thing. And that's what I want to pray for as we finish. I want to pray that the the grace of God will rest on us, that we're able to be generous. We're able to continue to be generous. I want us to pray that we will have soft hearts for the poor, that our giving will reflect his concerns.